Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad all of you are here. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors, and I really do hope each of you feel welcomed uh, to be a part of our community. If you're a first-time guest or you've been coming, uh, we're really, really glad all of you are here. Uh, I wanted to start this morning and kind of start off being pretty honest with you. Uh, I shared at our congregational meeting uh, a few weeks ago uh, that I have been wrestling personally with God over the past month or so about uh, some things pastorally, my, my call as pastor, this church, and uh, what God's doing here. And the way that I would explain my wrestling, uh, finally put it into some words, is, is what I'm doing as a pastor and what we're doing here at Christ Central Church, sacred sociology or a dynamic movement of God? Are we doing sacred sociology or are we really a dynamic movement of God? And in 20 years of ministry, uh, I've never really had this internal wrestle. Now, by sacred sociology, I mean, are we creating an organization where we're making decision after decision, some good decisions, some bad decisions, hiring staff and have some great music, some good programs that are inwardly cultivating community and uh, making much of Jesus in our lives and we're moving outward into the community, but we're really just kind of slapsticking some lipstick of Jesus and sprinkling a little spirituality on this organization that we're calling the church. And we're really fueled and centered on the self. Myself, yourself, ourself is what we're doing here, sacred sociology. Are we really a dynamic movement of God where God's at the center, where he's bearing fruit in us and through us because his love and his grace are daily transforming us. I'm confident in the midst of this I can say that God has made and is making us a dynamic movement. And I'm confident that he will continue to allow us to be a dynamic movement if we are driven by the gospel of God's grace and his relentless love of us seen in Jesus. But we will be doing sacred sociology if we're driven by the self, or I could say the ego. And there is a lot of Christianity driven by the ego. Ego is a sneaky thing. Not many people would set out to live life driven by the ego, but all of us struggle with it. The ego, it leads us to want to transcend mortality, to break through our limits, to expand our influence, to live up to our potential. Ego is love and occupation with self. Famous actor Gregory Peck was standing in line with a friend waiting for a table in a crowded L.A. restaurant. And they had been waiting for some time, and the, the diner seemed to be taking their time. New tables weren't turning over, and, and, and so uh, they were getting pretty impatient. They were even further back in line than they had hoped for. And finally, Peck's friend becomes impatient, and he said, why don't you just tell the maitre d' who you are? And Gregory Peck responded, if you have to tell them who you are, then you aren't. That's the ego ego. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is driven by the ego. He is a proud prophet. He is proud to be an Israelite. Before he says in chapter 1, when he's identifying himself to these sailors, the first thing he says to them is that he is a Israelite. Secondly, he is one who fears the Lord. So before he says he is one who fears the Lord, his primary form of identifying is that he is an Israelite. He is a Hebrew. So we've got to know this. Jonah is racially proud. 
bluntly speaking, Jonah is a racist. He thinks he's better than the Ninevites. And underneath all of it, Jonah wants to be God more than allow God to be God. So instead of preaching to those Ninevites, Jonah flees to Tarshish. He has an inflated ego. And if Jonah would have made it to Tarshish, I guarantee you what he would have been doing is sacred sociology. But thank God that the Lord intervenes despite the ego in Jonah's life and in our life. And he transforms us by his grace. That's what we see in Jonah chapter 1, 17 through Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. So if you're willing and able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's word. This is God's word to us this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you're with us this morning. And I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would use your word to speak to our spirits, that our minds would be illumined, our thoughts changed, our hearts transformed, that we would leave here having encountered and experienced you. Our lives would be different as a result. Thank you that you're here. I do pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Well, I was watching an interview a, a few weeks ago with Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And Kobe was talking about how much he loved practice, that he loved practice as much as playing in a real game. Kobe knew that what took place in the gymnasium of practice translated into the court of a real game. So Kobe would confine himself to shot after shot and hour after hour of honing his craft so that he could be transformed into one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Tom Brady, he restricts his diet, he ices his body, he stretches and he sleeps knowing that it will transform his 41-year-old body to still be able to compete at the highest level today, perhaps the greatest quarterback of all time. All great athletes know that what takes place in the gymnasium of training is where transformation happens. The belly of the whale is the place of transformation for Jonah. The belly of the whale is where Jonah is being changed by God, transformed and made ready to preach the gospel to Nineveh. 
the belly of the whale. It's where he comes to the end of himself, where his world is no longer immersed in Jonah, where the ego disappears and he's confined and restricted in this tight place where God has his attention. This is the place where God's grace makes its way deep down into his heart and begins to transform him from the inside out. The first two chapters of this book, Jonah, literally, if you were to read back over it, is descending down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the depth of the ship, down into the very depth of the ocean. Chapter 2, verse 3, down into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Verse 5, the deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped about my head. Jack Sasson said that Jonah had to go all the way down until he was finally stripped of his buoyant self-sufficiency. Only then would deliverance be possible. This is the place of transformation for every single one of us. At the end of ourselves, stripped of all buoyant self-sufficiency, ready to be transformed by a God full of love and grace. And every single one of us needs transformation. And there's two ways that I want to point out that God gets us to this place that we see in Jonah. One that is involuntary and one that's voluntary. The involuntary means of transformation is God's severe mercies. And the voluntary means of transformation is prayer. So let's look at severe mercies and prayer. Look first at severe mercies. Jonah 1:17 says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord appointed, this verb appointed is used throughout the book of Jonah. And in each case, God is orchestrating circumstances in history to teach Jonah something he desperately needed to know. Here, God orchestrates this great fish to come and swallow Jonah. Now, on the one hand, God was saving Jonah's life as he was drowning in the ocean. But on the other hand, he was still in the confinement of the belly of the well for three days. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says he feels like he's at the roots of the mountain. At the roots of the mountain, he is stripped of everything. God, through painful, difficult circumstance, was transforming Jonah. One commentator says that the usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. So when we're at the end of ourselves that we learn complete dependence on God. The belly of the whale is a severe mercy of God. He appointed it, orchestrated it to bring Jonah to the end of himself. Now, I know that in the middle of difficulty, in the midst of trial and suffering, it's hard to see this. And I would not necessarily lead with this in counseling someone who's going through a present day trial. Though I do believe because of God's severe mercies that when we come out of that which is painful, we can actually see that God was working in ways we didn't even expect. That he was bringing more good than we could have ever anticipated out of that which was painful. Sometimes hindsight is 2020. Many of the most important lessons that I've learned, and I would say you perhaps have learned, have been the result of God's severe mercies. These severe mercies, when we've been forced to realize our human limits, right? by them we're pulled out of our ego-driven, God-complex, God-condition, 
when we're confined to the reality of our human condition. And as this happens, we then can understand God's grace more and more. Now hear me, when this happens, life's not diminished, but it's deepened. And we're not crippled from being all that we want to be. Rather, we can become all that God wants us to be. It's this place of involuntary severe mercy that change happens. When self-absorption that once dominated our life is now dominated by God. J.K. Rowling, who's the author of Harry Potter, most of you have heard of Harry Potter. Uh, J.K. Rowling gave the commencement speech to Harvard in 2008 at their graduation. And in her speech, she described a point in her life when she, quote, failed on an epic scale. She had a short-lived marriage that imploded. She was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. And this is what she said, quote, failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. I began to direct all my energy to finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area where I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive and I still had a daughter whom I adored and I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom, became a solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. Rock bottom, or as Jonah says, the roots of the mountain become the solid foundation on which life is rebuilt. Jesus, Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10, 39. You must lose your life to find your life. We'll never realize Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. This is one way God transforms us. Involuntary severe mercies. Things like unemployment or divorce or death or moving to a new place. These are places of restriction and confinement where God brings us to the end of ourselves to finally see him and his world clearly. But listen, please, we do not need to wait for an accident or an illness or a failure to come to the end of our ego-driven God complex. We can take deliberate, voluntary steps. And this is my second point. This is prayer. Prayer is the voluntary means of transformation. All of chapter two is Jonah praying. But it's a different type of praying than what I think a lot of us are accustomed to. I'm gonna riff on one of the most influential people in my life, Eugene Peterson, who recently passed away. Peterson says that much of prayer today, even other spiritual disciplines like Bible reading have been obscured. That today we have been taught in American evangelicalism, chatty devotionalism. How to implore spiritual disciplines as if spirituality were a mood that we can self-induce and spiritual disciplines were techniques that we can put to use to, the, to tend to the well-being of our own souls. Many of us have been taught a Christianity with self at the center, a consumer approach to spiritual life. We have lived in Christian subcultures that, is, that have taught us to live by formulas and to treat our spiritual life like a cafeteria where we can make selections according to our taste. But true transformation by God's grace doesn't come by a formula but rather as we immerse ourselves in an environment in which we realize this is God's world 
not our world. Prayer is this place of immersion. Prayer is this place. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jonah prays when he's in the belly of the whale. Most people would utter some kind of prayer when they find themselves at their wit's end. Perhaps the most devout unbeliever would throw up a prayer when there's nowhere else to turn. So I want to look specifically at Jonah's praying, uh, and, and he- hope, hopefully it will help us in, in our prayer lives. So what we see here is that prayer for Jonah is a place of restriction and confinement. He's in this belly of the well. He, he is confined. Now, prayer can be difficult. I get it. But it's not rocket science. In prayer, you pick a place and a time, a closet and a clock, sanctuary and some silence, and you commit to doing this at least daily, if not multiple times a day of praying. Now, Jonah's praying, as I said, is not amazing. What is amazing is what Jonah prays. Jonah prays the Psalms. Almost every word that Jonah prays is taken directly from what has historically been the church's prayer book, the Psalms. See, Jonah's prayer is not spontaneous self-expression. Jonah has been taught to pray from the book of Psalms. He's been schooled in how to pray. I mean, listen to this. These are, these are Jonah's words here. My distress, Psalm 18. Sheol, Psalm 18, all the waves and thy billows passed over me, Psalm 42. From thy presence, Psalm 139, upon thy holy temple, Psalm 5. The waters closed in over me, Psalm 69. My life from the pit, that's Psalm 30. My soul fainted within me, Psalm 142. Into thy holy temple, Psalm 18. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3. Now, our ego and our culture teach us to pray mostly by self-expression pouring ourselves out to God, lifting gratitude to God when we feel need or if there's occasion. Now, I'm not against pouring out our hearts to God. That's, that's a part of prayer. But the place of transformation is prayer dominated by a sense of God, a world immersed in God. And the Psalms help us immerse ourselves in his world. Eugene Peterson is kind of talking about the difference between our culture's type of praying and psalm type of praying. And he was talking about this, uh, his son, who's a creative writing professor at the University of Colorado. His son was telling him about this course that he was teaching, uh, and the creative stories began to come in, and his son was amazed at how these poems and stories all reeked of self-absorption, uh, much like our culture of prayer and American evangelicalism. And he, and he said that his students were Narcissist hoping writing would be a way of becoming a better narcissist. Everything was their own experience. And as a teacher, he began to get frustrated. So he took them out of the classroom one day, walked across the street to the cemetery, and they spent hours walking over graves, reading epigraphs, taking notes on what they imagined. And then they were instructed to write stories out of this cemetery experience. And there was great creativity in writings because they had entered a world larger than themselves. And Peterson says that the Psalms are the cemetery in which our Lord the Spirit leads us out of ourselves to rescue our prayers from self-absorption and set us on the way to God-responsiveness. The Psalms have been the church's manual of prayer for thousands of years. Many branches of God's church have used praying the Psalms daily 
as a part of their transformation process for thousands of years. And so let me encourage you that if you do not or have not taken a psalm and, and tried to take a psalm a day and pray through it, use the psalmist words to be your words. Meditate in it, sit in it, be silent and let God move in your heart. Maybe do it multiple times a day and immerse yourself in a larger world than your world. I'm going to just plug here that on January 5th, we're going to be hosting a day of prayer, a prayer school of sorts, where we're going to kind of teach you how to pray in, in this way. And I'm excited because I've been learning this over the past year and some change, uh, how much of my Christianity is self-absorption rather than having an imagination dominated by God. And so we want to help facilitate uh, this in your life. And so we're going to do this on January 5th. So I hope, hope maybe you'll come. Realize a day of prayer doesn't, isn't cool and attractive to many people, uh, but I'm really, really excited for this day. So Jonah's being transformed. We're transformed by God's severe mercies and in prayer. But how is Jonah transformed? How does God want to transform us? There's three things that I want to look at. The first thing that we see is that there's a new compassion toward others. When God is transforming us by his grace, when we're at the end of ourselves and we understand who God is, there's a new compassion toward others. But when we run away from God, when we turn away from a true perspective on the lives of other men and other women, we shut our hearts down toward others. There is no love for other people. And you remember, Jonah thought he was better than the Ninevites. He was proud to be an Israelite. He was one of the chosen people of God, and he had no compassion for Nineveh. Jonah probably saw his sin and Nineveh's sin in, in different categories. You can almost hear Jonah in chapter 1 saying, they're adulterers and murderers, idol worshipers. They're cruel. I never did anything like this. Jonah thought he was so much better, a world of self, but now in the belly of the well, he is constricted to see the world as God's world and God as a God of grace. And he receives this mercy and grace and is transformed with this new compassion for Nineveh. And now Nineveh is no longer a city full of awful, awful heathens, but mortal men and women and children who need to hear the grace of God. The grace Jonah received from God is the grace that he's now ready and willing to preach to Nineveh. When we are transformed by God's grace, a new compassion for the world is birthed within us, a heart of evangelism to go and preach this grace is birthed. We are recipients of grace. We're transformed into conduits of grace. See, our willingness to share the love of Christ with humility is a litmus test of our transformation. Here's the second thing we see of this transformation is that there's a new consecration of self. Look at verse nine. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah was once committed as God's prophet to preach the gospel to any and all who God called him to preach it. We saw last week he's running away and he's committed to his life and his vision of what life should be. And now he's in the belly of the well and he's being transformed and he's renewing his commitment to what he had vowed earlier to his God to speak and preach God's word to any and to all whom God called him. 
when God transforms us and we know we live in his world, we are firmly committed to doing anything and everything he calls us to do. And we do it with thanksgiving, not begrudgingly, but with joy. Jonah says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will do what you've told me to do. It's a new consecration of self. The third thing we see in this transformation is there's a new sense of God. Look at verse 9. Jonah shouts, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the new song in Jonah's mouth. He is now immersed in God's world and God's salvation. He is set free from himself and he proclaims the truth and the beauty of God's salvation. Forgiveness of sin, redemption and rescue, adoption, sons and daughters brought into the family of God. Once new darkness, now no light. Once surrounded by hate, but now secured by eternal love. Now, Jonah knew these things. He was God's prophet. He proclaimed these things. He knew God's salvation, but now in this place of restriction and confinement, he really knows. Now he knows that God's not a God of saving, but he's the one who is saving Jonah. The truth has traveled from Jonah's head to his heart. Listen, the, the father sent the son, Jesus to enter not a belly, but the grave. And he would be confined to the tomb for three days, a place of preparation and transformation. For from this place, the Lord Jesus would rise victorious from the dead and declare that salvation belongs to him. This is the song of the Savior. He is the Lord of salvation and he offers all the benefits of salvation to all who call upon his name. Do you know this, not just in your head, but in your heart, that he is the Lord of salvation and it belongs to him and he freely offers his salvation to you. Chapter two, verse 10, the Lord spoke and spit Jonah out after he's been transformed and now he's ready to go proclaim Salvation to Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 1, which we'll look at next week, says, For the word of the Lord came a second time. See, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came for the first time, and he wasn't ready. Now it comes a second time, and he's ready. He's been transformed, and he's ready to go proclaim this gospel of grace to Nineveh. Let me close with two stories of two teachers who've impacted my life greatly. The first is Dr. Charles McKenzie. He taught me history of philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, he was before a professor at RTS, the professor at Princeton and Stanford and Columbia, brilliant man. In, in his mid-80s, he was teaching our class, and he would teach for three hours. But at the end of every class, he would put his notes away, and he'd look us all in the eye, and he would say, class, do you know God loves you? And we're all like, yeah. See, God loves you. And there are many people out there that don't know God's love. Let's go tell them. And like every, it was like a brave heart. Everybody, yeah. Man, he didn't even raise his voice. But his understanding of who God was and the love of God that abounded to him transformed him in such a way that he motivated us to understand God's love and therefore go and proclaim it. When we're transformed, by this grace and by this love, 
we will go out and proclaim it. Eugene Peterson, this is the second story of the second teacher who I've mentioned already this morning. Only met Pastor Eugene. He's my pastor from a distance, sat at his feet for years, read many of his books. But Eugene, uh, his son, Leif, said that uh, at his funeral, his dad really only had one sermon. Eugene passed away a few weeks ago. And at the funeral, he said, my dad really only had one sermon. Uh, he had everybody fooled for 29 years of his pastoral ministry. And for all the books he, he, he had, there's really only one message. And it was a secret that Leif said his dad let him in on early in life. It was a message that his dad had whispered to his heart for 50 years. Words that he would come into his son's room over and over and over and whisper into his son's ears as he slept. And he would say, son, God loves you. God is on your side and he's coming after you and he's relentless. Church, God loves you. Look at Jesus, how great the father's love that he would give his only son. He is on your side. Even when we run away like Jonah, he comes after us. He is relentless and he will use severe mercies and prayer to lay hold of all of our hearts. And as he does this, we will be a people that go and tell others about him. See, when true transformation takes place in our lives, sacred sociology is impossible. We'll be engaged in a dynamic movement of God. Ego stripped away, immersed in God's world of love and grace, with a new compassion for others, a new consecration of self, and a new sense of God's salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would transform us, God. Lord, I know all of us are in different places. And some of us are going through very difficult things. They don't feel uh, like mercies. They just feel severe. I pray that you would uh, enable us to see your presence and, and your mercy in the midst of them. And Lord, uh, I confess uh, that much of my prayer life and our prayer lives and our world is dominated by self. So I pray you would transform us into a people that have imaginations and views of life dominated by you. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.